and welcome to another edition of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This is half an hour where we will be talking about science and even this week talking to another scientist. That's right. This week, Stu, welcome to Lost in Science. Welcome, Claire. (laughs) This week we have Dr. David Farmer, who's actually a neurophysiologist from the Florey Institute in Melbourne, who's coming to the studio and he's going to be talking um, all about his research into, I say, the most important fundamental part of the brain. Some people call it the arse end of the brain. It is, in fact, the brain stem. So it's it's pretty important. It's very important. I don't think the brain would work very well without it. No. No. It doesn't. You don't work very well without it. Not just you, Stu. Yeah, don't look at me when you say that. (laughs) One one doesn't work very well. You. Um, You know, it's the part of the brain that's responsible for all those unconscious things, breathing and, you know. All the things you don't have to think about and when you think about them too much you start freaking out. Um, Yep, and all those sorts of things. So we're going to talk about um, his research, what he does, and and he's also a science communicator. So he's got a show um, called Why You Are Not Dead Yet, which I think is a great name for a science communication show. Certainly you won't get anyone showing up who could argue with the title. (laughs) How about you, Stu? Well, it's a very sad anniversary coming up um, and... The federal government decided to commemorate this sad anniversary. But if you want to know what this mysterious day is coming up, you'll have to stay tuned to the show because I'll tell you later on. You're not going to tell us beforehand? No. Even a clue? It's something that died. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Okay. All right. You'll, you'll, You'll kind of be happy about it, I'm sure. Okay. Stay tuned. My guest today is neurophysiologist from the Flory Institute, who is studying what he proclaims as the arse end of the brain, a.k.a. the brain stem, Dr. David Farmer. Welcome to Lost in Science. Thanks, Claire. Thanks for having me. Oh, no problem. Um, Now, what is the arse end of the brain and how does one study it? So when I say the arse end of the brain, I'm talking about the brain stem. And the reason that I talk about it in that way and I do mean it affectionately because I love the brainstem. Is it one of those situations where you're allowed to call it the outside of the brain, but I'm not? That's right. I've it? reclaimed it on yeah. the behalf of brainstem okay. studiers everywhere. That's exactly right. <laughs> um, so the brainstem is a part of the brain that has very little to do with sexy neuroscience things like memory or consciousness or emotion. Okay. So none of that cognitive thought. Yeah. And all, all the fancy yeah. stuff that you associate with neuroscience, almost that kind of extension of psychology stuff is mm-hmm. the brainstem doesn't have so much to do with that. Okay. The brainstem has more to to do with things like breathing and heart rate and blood pressure and sexual function and kidney function and gut function 
And all these things that my colleagues at the Neuroscience Institute who do study the sex in neuroscience stuff like memory, emotion, or cogn cognition would call housekeeping, but I call, like, important. Fundamental like, yeah, housekeeping. Like, this is why you're not Come a on. dead person. Yes. Like, yeah. So, yeah, it's the arse end of the brain because it's kind of, it's perceived as a slightly less sexy part of the brain. It's this murky bit at the bottom of your skull that is kind of hard to tease apart how anything works. Now, when I think of the brainstem, I always think of Mike the Headless Chicken. Um, <laughs> I'm not familiar are, with that you're particular. Giving me, you're giving me a certain look, a quizzical look. Um, that particular headless chicken is not one I'm familiar there with. There was yeah. a chicken who got its head almost cut off completely, but not entirely. Right. So it had all of its head, but it had its brainstem left. Yeah. And it survived for months, possibly years. With like um, with some medical intervention, I'm guessing. Like, yeah, like, oh, I don't know if there was a medical intervention. There was a plaster. It was cared for. Okay. There was a band-aid, yeah, yeah, and it was cared for, but um but yeah, it healed over and it could actually function without a head and most of a brain, but it did have its brain stem. Yeah, that's right. So your brain stem is like the part of the brain that does yeah, cuz it's breathing. Like if you stop breathing, you're you're dead in 5 minutes. It doesn't matter what else you can your brain can do. If you can't breathe, you die. And with nothing but an intact brain stem, yeah, you can regulate your blood pressure quite happily. You'll continue to breathe in a way that keeps your lungs and blood oxygenated your guts will continue churning and even things like you can even basic taste works so basic taste acceptance or rejecting you know you'll swallow something savory but spit out something bitter that kind of thing still works coughing and gagging and sneezing all these reflexes tend to work absolutely fine if your brain stems intact but you don't have any of what we call the thinking bits so tell me, how do you how do you study these real fundamental parts of the brain? That's a great question. It's easier than studying more complicated, higher up bits of the brain. And the reason is because if you want to study a brain cell, a neuron, you are basically trying to give it a function. You're trying to pick out a neuron and say the job of this neuron is to do this in whatever process, memory or blood pressure regulation, whatever you happen to be studying. Now, if you study cognition and you're studying neurons in the upper bits of the brain the you know the, the what, what do you call them the thinking bits the thinking the bits. cortical yeah. bits yeah and um, if you study those neurons those neurons mostly only talk to other neurons so it's hard to look at them in terms of where they go and what they're talking to and say this is the purpose of this neuron however if you're looking at neurons that are controlling say the heart if you can in an experimental setting, go near the heart and record the neurons as they go into the heart, you can say with some certainty the neurons that are going to the heart have something to do with controlling heart function. So in with regards to that, it's almost easier to identify the neurons that control these functions and study them to an extent. Does that make sense? Yeah, it yeah. does. It's sort of like, so there's less pathways sort of or you can you can see the pathways it's, more there's i think there are less pathways but it's more that you have access to a part right. of the pathway because the path because the because the cells in the brainstem leave the brainstem you know right. they they, they yes. have these axons that go these projections that go all the way down the spinal cord to near where they're going to go you have a means of picking them out identifying them you can record their electrical activity and then change something experimentally to see what that does to their activity so it's sort of like the body is giving you a map to be able to set about research exactly in the exactly and when you study neural function you want to understand it in terms of just that you want to understand function so when you want to understand how the heart is controlled you record the neurons that go to the heart and then you know 
design an experiment and ask a question and wham, bam, you got an Thank answer. You, it's always that easy. It's always that easy. It always works exactly like <laughs> <Yes>. I've just described. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it does. Yeah. Um, so speaking of neural pathways and mm-hmm. um, maps to certain organs and parts of the body, tell us about your research. So I know um, one of the, your research areas you look at coughing. Yes. So would that be the neural pathway from the brain, what, to the to the windpipe? or uh, The windpipe's part of it. So what's cool about cough is that coughing is not breathing. Never really thought about it. Yeah. So I mean it isn't, is it? Yeah, no, it's not. And it's not gagging either. No, it's not. It's it's not it's like breathing, but it's not breathing. So the reason that you breathe is because there's a a group of cells in your brain stem stem who network together and whose job it is to produce a rhythm. And that rhythm Right. How how many are we talking here? Ah, good question. And it depends. I mean, some people say it's as few as like eighty. And some people say you need a whole network throughout the right, brain okay. to make it work. So it's contentious. It depends. I've seen. Yeah. I've actually been to conferences where I've seen five grown adults call each other names. <laughs> people who hold millions <laughs> in research funding calling each other names because they disagree on this point. <laughs> All right. So okay. you've got these cells in your brainstem generating this rhythm, and the job of these cells is to control the muscles in your chest that you use to breathe. So the diaphragm in your chest, all the muscles in between um, your ribs, your intercostal muscles. And because the action of these neurons is rhythmic, they're generating a rhythm, rhythm, you get rhythmic action in your breathing muscles in your chest, and that's breathing. And that's why you breathe when you're asleep or not paying attention to it or not, you know, using your using your muscles to do something else like talk. So all breathing is from a neuroscientific perspective is a pattern of activity produced by the brain in the respiratory muscles. And that's clearly essential for life, because if you stop breathing for five minutes, you die. So therefore, it's pretty cool and kind of surprising that the brainstem can produce different patterns of activity in those muscles. Yeah. So you can produce a cough, for example. And I can do it now if I want. I can <coughs> cough. I can just at and will. And is that the brainstem? Cough. That's no. not known. No, that's not That's known. not known. But So that's one kind of cough. But there's another kind of cough. There's a, a reflex cough, which is the kind of cough that I study, which is the cough that's initiated when something goes into your windpipe that shouldn't be there. So you have nerve cells in your windpipe that are exquisitely sensitive to touch. When you activate these cells in your windpipe with something that shouldn't be there, um, like an inhaled piece of food or a, a mouthful of beer or something, those nerve cells are activated, that information goes to the brainstem. The brainstem makes some kind of subconscious decision to stop coughing and to start <laughs> coughing. And all coughing is, is a pattern produced by the brainstem in the same muscles that's not breathing. But What's fascinating about that is that breathing is so essential to life. It's just amazing that we can do anything else with those muscles at all. Right down to what we're doing now, which is bypassing our brain stems to have a conversation about bypassing our brain stems and using our breathing muscles. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. And you can't breathe and also cough at the same time. Um, so what, what tends to happen is the same as talk. If you talk too much and you get out of breath, we can override the part of our brainstem that produces breathing. But as things change in our body, as we breathe less, carbon dioxide accumulates and this gets sensed by the brainstem and that 
provides uh, a source of motivation to the like intrinsic breathing bits of the brain. So as your carbon dioxide goes up and up, you feel this urge to stop talking and start breathing. You feel out of breath. You feel like you want to stop and just and just start breathing. So yeah, I I would guess it would be the same with cough. That as you increase. If, it, if you're coughing so much that you're not breathing properly, you're probably going to stop coughing and start breathing again. Um, what has been the most interesting thing you found from your research into um, coughing? Uh, one really interesting thing about the initiation of cough, like so if you have something in your windpipe and your neurons that detect that get switched on and the information goes to your brainstem and the brainstem decides, okay, stop breathing, start coughing. We know where in the brainstem that happens. So we know where those nerve cells go to and where the information's passed from the, the windpipe to the brain. And it's in the brainstem, it's in a place called the nucleus of the solitary tract, which is wow, such, such great branding. That is a great name. Absolutely. Oh, sounds quite lonely though. So the, the information goes there and we know that the information goes there because if you, um, again, in an experimental setting, block the action of neurotransmitters in that action and stimulate the windpipe, you don't get a cough. But at the same time, if you just inject neurotransmitters into that area, you don't get a cough, which is weird because those two things really ought to be the same thing. So there's something weird happening at the interaction between the neurons that sense change in the windpipe and the part of the brain that decides to cough that we really don't understand so somehow you can't fool, yeah, can't fool it's, it, those neurons. The stimulus must be more complicated than, than just, just a neurotransmitter. Just the, or the presence of a neurotransmitter produces yeah. a cough. It has to be somehow more complicated than that. And I, I, that's, that's what fascinates me at the moment. Like I really want to get into that and mess around with that and try and figure that out. Do you have a gut feeling about what it is? Um, I, I don't know. One mm. thing we know is that so when you activate the nerve cells in the trachea with something like natural, like something that would normally produce a cough, like, you know, a piece of chicken parma or something. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it, you send these electrical signals up the, up the nerve cells and it's a very particular pattern. So there's some encoding of the signal, if you like. So it's, it's almost like a, it's almost like maybe it's like a modem, you know, it's like you send a, a pattern of signals and then somehow that pattern is interpreted by the end, by the nucleus of the solitary tract, by the brain to that particular pattern is essential for producing the conditions that produce the cough. But honestly, I really don't know. I mean, we need to we need to do the experiments, but that sounds fascinating. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll get to do well, when you do, can you please come back on the show yeah, and tell sure, us? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So apart from being a neurophysiologist, you are also a science communicator, performer, um, and you've got a great show called Why You Are Not Dead Yet. Um, I want to know how has the response been to a show um, about mortality? Do, um, are, are people attracted to it? Uh, yeah, people have been really responsive to it. Um uh, again, I think so. The show is all about the brainstem. It's all about these little things that the brain's doing to keep an eye on your internal environment and protect you from dying, much as cough does, or you know, a fallen blood pressure. The way the brainstem responds to that. Yeah, and I mean, you study um, heart, uh, the responses to the heart as well, right? Absolutely, yeah. So I'm kind of interested in all these little things that the brainstem does to kind of mm -hmm. keep an eye on you, moment to moment, to keep you alive. Yeah, and yeah, people are really interested because I think you don't think about it. You know, we kind of yeah. 
we think of uh, ourselves as brains, you know, these pilots sitting on top of a body, and the body just does a bunch of stuff to keep us alive. But often it's not the body, it's still the brain. It's just not a part of the brain that we have any conscious control over. But what's really cool about the brainstem is that it is part of the brain. It's making decisions. You know, it's, it's, a, it's something that takes information about what's going on in our body. And it's not just relaying that information to the relevant places. There are actually some processing happening, you know, some subconscious decisions being made about what's best to do when that we're not con conscious of. Can you give but, us an example of one of those? Absolutely. So like I say, the brainstem is monitoring what's going on in your body all yep. the time. Um, and a really obvious example of something that you need to live is that you need blood to be going to your brain all the time because the brain's very energy hungry. So if the blood supply to it falls for even a couple of seconds, what tends to happen is that you faint, you lose consciousness. Now, here's the thing. Even something as simple as changing the position of your body or moving can disrupt the amount of blood flow going to your brain. So, for example, when you go from lying down where your heart is at the same level as your head, so the blood's kind of going across the earth, if you like, into your head. When you go from that position to sitting up, suddenly the blood has to be pumped up against gravity. So it has to be pumped up against the force of gravity into your head. Now, the reason that you don't pass out when this happens is that when you sit up, your blood pressure falls because the blood is fighting to get up against gravity, being pumped by the heart, fighting against gravity. And that fall in blood pressure is detected by the brainstem, which responds by coordinating your organs to counteract the change. So it simultaneously constricts the blood vessels in your muscles, pushing the blood out of them and back towards your heart and head. And it simultaneously stimulates the heart itself to beat you know, with renewed vigor to get the, all that new blood back up to the head to keep you conscious. And that all happens so fast that you don't even think about it. You just sit up. Although if you sit up or stand up very quickly, you can just about hit the middle <laughs> part of that response, which is what a head, if you've ever had a head rush while yeah. you stand up, it's because yeah. you're standing up slightly faster than your brainstem is accommodating the change in blood pressure. But again, if I'm that... just actually just training my brainstem, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, no, you are. You are. Absolutely. Yeah. Where can people see this show? When will you be out and about with this show again, David? I am hoping, I have nothing confirmed at the moment, but I'm hoping to do something in regional Victoria sometime before the end of the year, hopefully in Ballarat. Um, and I'm having a look at doing the Adelaide Fringe next year, but I haven't quite worked out how that works yet. Fantastic. Um, yeah, but it's something that I'm going to keep doing because it's a lot of fun and uh, I get my jollies doing it. Um, so for purely selfish reasons, I will keep doing it <laughs> and uh, spreading the word about the brainstem to whomever will come into a little pub and listen to me do so. So it'll be around. Well, David Farmer, thank you so much for coming on Lost in Science today and giving us greater appreciation of what is the fundamental part of the brain, not the arse end of the brain, <laughs> the brainstem. Thanks, David. Thanks.
Okay, so a very important day is coming up on the calendar next week, and we all know what day that is, right? Well, um, because I am a bit of an animal nerd, I do have an inkling. You do? Yes. It was a very sad day. It was a very sad day. And can you tell us what it was, Claire? Um, it is the commemoration of when the last Tasmanian tiger died in captivity in Hobart. Yeah. And apparently, from what I was reading, someone left it out overnight and it died of cold, oh. apparently. Which is God, just, just, it's just so insult awful. Insult to injury, yeah. isn't it? So, yeah, we are talking about the thylacine, um, also known as the Tasmanian tiger. Um, so, look. And when when was that? That was in the 1930s, 1936. Right? 1936. Yeah. yeah. So, having one thylacine should have been a bit of a warning sign that things were not good for the Tassie tiger. Um, even Noah knew you needed two of each animal. Mm. To, uh, to keep population going. But in reality, that's not really good enough. A single pair of, of any species is not enough genetic diversity to keep them going, really. No, no, it's a bit of a genetic so, dead end. Um, there's, you know, there's genetic bottlenecks and there's inbreeding problems that cause these, you know, cause huge problems. Um, so in reality, there's a lower limit for viability in animal species and for other species, but... You know, with with plants, you can kind of keep a whole lot of seeds or something like that. There's really you've got to have live animals. You can't bring them yeah. back in any other way. So that's a huge problem. Um, but in commemoration of the last thylacine, the Australian government made an official National Threatened Species Day on September the seventh every year. So this they did this in 1996 on the sixtieth anniversary of the last thylacine dying out. You know, um, what? so the thylacine died out in the nineteen in 1936 and cane toads were introduced into Australia, I think, in 1935. It's interesting that that was, you know, a couple of years apart. Are you blaming the cane toad for the thylacine? I'm just saying, everyone. There was, there was, I'm just saying. There was an imbalance in the <laughs> science. But if you, if you think about why the cane toad was introduced, which was for an economic reason, there was no economic reason to preserve the thylacine, except you could go and look at it at the zoo, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, people thought they were pests in Tassie, so that was a bit of a problem. Look, but the thing is, uh, the idea of um, National Threatened Species Day is to promote the conservation of the most endangered Indigenous flora and fauna species in Australia. So Australia is one of the most biodiverse countries on Earth. And I think we kind of take it for granted a little bit, but comparatively to other land masses of similar size, um, they have a tiny fraction of the diversity we have here. So looking at the United States, for example, they have about two to 3,000 species of plants and animals that you can't find anywhere else in the world. And that's including Hawaii and Alaska. And if you look at Canada, which is almost exactly the same size as Australia, it's actually bigger than Australia, They've got less than 100 unique endemic animals in Canada. And in Australia, we have around about a million species of plants and animals and <laughs> about 80% so of them are endemic. So you can't find them anywhere else in the it's world. so many. It is so many. And if they're gone, we can't just go and look overseas and find another one and bring it back. Not we Canada, at least. Not in Canada. No. Um, unless they've got a huge population of... Uh, Australian animals hidden somewhere in Except there. that one time that we found the Palmer wallaby 
in New Zealand after someone had said it, like had introduced it over in New Zealand and then it became extinct on the Australian mainland and then they brought it back. Apart from that time, yeah, look, please refer to a previous Lost in Science episode. <laughs> Apart from that one time, you can't just go overseas and get the... I think if we're relying on accidental <laughs> rediscoveries of... Uh, extinct yeah, it's, animals. It's, it's not it's, a way to work. It's, it's not, not. It's a, not a good not track a record. Plan. No, no, it's not. Um, so the majority of animal species that were threatened in Australia generally are uh, impacted in a couple of major ways, mainly through habitat loss and predation by exotic animals. They're the two biggest threats to uh, endangered animals or, or threatened animals in Australia. So habitat loss is simply the replacement of native vegetation with other types of plants. Um, and some animals can adapt to that, and a lot of Australian animals are relatively vegetarian. Um, they pretty much only eat plants. So, you know, you look at possums, brush-tailed possums and ring-tailed possums seem to have gotten away with, you know, just eating whatever's around. But a lot of animals can't do that. They just haven't got the, you know, digestion to cope with all of these. Like koalas, for instance. For example, koalas are a good example because they... They only can eat a, a limited range of species. Um, and then there's other animals with different dietary requirements. But in some cases, you know, a lot of birds, for example, eat insects. And if the insects don't have the right plants available for them to eat, then the birds don't get to eat the insects. So you can break down all of these food chains that, uh, that would have existed um, just by replacing the plants. Um, and then, also, you know, obviously we've got the case of feral and domestic animals. Um, you know, so we have... You're not allowed to take animals into national parks and things like that. And there's big control programs to get foxes and feral cats and dogs. And, you know, basically there's every kind of animal you can imagine. There's feral populations of them in Australia. Um, but, you know, in urban areas, that's a huge problem too, because obviously you replaced all of this uh, urban vegetation or you replaced the vegetation in urban areas with gardens and lawns and things. Um, and, you know, the imported... Animals are just better at coping. And also they um, eat things. There's not that many uh, carnivores in Australia, um, or certainly not left. No. Um, there was a thylacine. There was a thylacine. There was one at least. We know that. Um, but, you know, if you look around, there's only sort of Tasmanian devils are one of the largest quals. Uh, predators. Quals Don't are quite quals. Yes. But again, they're competing with dogs and cats and yes. and you know imported yeah. uh, animals. Foxes. So obviously, there's also one other major issue, which is impacting habitat, is the changes to vegetation from climate change, which are shifting the patterns of forest development and succession in Australia. Um, you know, I mean, the bushfire season in New South Wales, for instance, is been pushed back into August, which is pretty unusual um, uh, in living memory anyway. Um, but, you know, these kind of things are going to have bigger and bigger impacts. So we're going to have to figure out better ways to uh, approach conservation of native animals and plants as well. So what should people do for um, National Threatened Species Day? Well, look, there are some activities on around the country. Um, it's... Sorry? I should go threaten a species, but you shouldn't do that. No, We're stop threatening the species. Stop threatening. Yeah. Chris, you missed yeah. the point of the story. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't to make more threatened species okay. by yeah. threatening them personally. Uh, look, there are some activities on around the country in various places. It's probably worth having a search on the internet for National Threatened Species Day in your state 
to see what's going on because there's there are activities going on all around the country, um, but obviously no point promoting them if you're not in the neighbourhood. But um, the other thing which people may not know is that September is Biodiversity Month in Australia. This is an official month that, that we've adopted to say, yes, we'll look after biodiversity and start counting things and... You know, I mean, with with a new government, um, it might be worth putting for National Threatened Species Day. Um, it might be worth putting pen to paper and writing to your local member and asking what they are doing to help biodiversity and threatened species in your local area. I think absolutely. If you do look around and find nothing on for National yeah. Threatened Species Day, yeah, get in touch with your MP and ask them why not. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost, lost in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.